Hear the word of the Lord. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, it's an exciting day for us for a number of reasons. First and foremost, Baptism Sunday. We got baptism happening. Uh, so that'll be, you know, let's call it 25 minutes or so if you can wait. And uh, I'm really excited. We had a baptism a couple of weeks ago. We've got this baptism. We've got a baptism coming next week. And that's like, that sounds like the, the tip of the spear of revival. So I know that the people getting baptized here, uh, they're not the only ones who are thinking about it. They're not the only ones who are wrestling with that first step of faith. And so I encourage you, like if, if you want to go run and grab your kids right after communion, I, I would encourage you to sit and watch the drama of our salvation get played out. Because I think, I really believe, I said this in the first service, I think God's inviting somebody to come and take that step, whether it's giving your life over to Christ or coming and being baptized as your first act of obedience. So it's, uh, it's exciting to be part of a church where it almost feels normal for people to get baptized because that's not normal. You know what I mean? It's the, it's the spirit of the eternal God bringing newness of life to somebody. And there's just been generations of churches that, you know, they prayed and they did all the stuff that we do, but they didn't get to see this kind of stuff happen. So it's such a privilege to be able to see that. And I'm, I'm glad that you're here with us. Uh, next week, there's a bunch of uh, announcements and stuff on the back of your bulletin. Um, that you can check out. But next week, we're starting a new series on the book of Daniel. Uh, do we have the... There it is. Where is it? There it is. Staying strong in a world of chaos. Stand. Uh, same artist did the artwork for Daniel. So there's different images if you flip it up or down based on the life of Daniel. Now, some of y'all might be really excited about the book of Daniel because you grew up in a church or, or in your basement. You got an end times timeline drawn out across your basement. And that's where people go to with the book of Daniel. The second half of Daniel is all prophecies and visions and dates. And just spoiler alert, no one is really exactly sure what he's talking about. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, you dodged a bullet. Um, but there's huge areas of debate. And there's some people that look to the book of Daniel as this kind of Rosetta Stone for how the world's going to end. And these are the places where you'll see like, 2019 reasons Jesus is coming back in 2019. And do you know what they released the next year? 2020 reasons Jesus is coming back. Jesus didn't know when he came back. He didn't know when he's come back. He only the Father knew. So we're not going to go looking for, uh, you know, the secret to the end times in the book of Daniel. The second half are those visions and revelations. We're staying in the first half where we're going to look at the man Daniel. There's similar themes to the book of Esther. There is a steadiness in Daniel in the sense he didn't waver. His faith was secure. But he's uh, a bit more confrontational towards the powers at at work than uh, we see Esther and Mordecai, at least initially. So we're going to be looking at Esther, or I'm sorry, Daniel, starting next week for a few weeks, first six, seven chapters. And I uh, hope you guys can make it to that and, and invite a friend. Uh, we're finishing Esther today. If you're planning on sticking around for the Mike Cosper Esther talk after this, he double booked himself. 
and we had to cancel. So if you know Mike Cosper, give him a hard time. Let him know how much you're looking forward to it and how devastated you were. Uh, we emailed you last week if you signed up for it, but in case you're here and hoping to get Jersey Mike's, you're going to have to go to Jersey Mike's to get Jersey Mike's not here. So that is canceled. Last day of Esther is still today, though. And here we go. I don't know how to transition other than that. We're going to finish the book of Esther now. Um, so some of you know my dad. Uh, he's a member here, which is quite the thing to be a preacher at a church where your parents are members. I'm going to talk about him because they're in Florida right now, and he's not here. Uh, my dad, uh, you maybe have heard me say this before, my dad has, I would say, about a hundred foot presence. He's the kind of guy that you can feel uh, from about a hundred feet away, I would say. And I'm not exactly sure what it is about him, but he's just got this kind of aura about him. And as a kid, I could feel when my dad came home from work before I knew he was home, if that makes sense. My dad traveled a lot, and you could just kind of sense when he was back in the house. He wouldn't let off air horns or have presents or scream, be like, Daddy's back! But you could just kind of tell when Dad walked into the room. There wasn't always specific crystal clear evidence, no grand announcement, but over time I learned to recognize the emotional feeling of my dad being home, even when I couldn't necessarily tell or didn't have exact evidence that he was home. Uh, if this is your first week with us through the book of Esther, we, we've said several times that uh, it's confusing to read Esther because God is totally absent. Um, he's not mentioned, nobody prays, nobody does any miracles, and it can be confusing. Why is this in the Bible? Uh, it's gritty, it's nasty, awful stuff happens in the book of Esther. There's graphic stuff that we're going to have to deal with here today. Preaching five chapters of Esther at once, so if, if you're wondering you know, what the money's for, it's days like today. If you're wondering why my face looks the way it does, it's because I'm going to try to preach five chapters of the Bible at once. Uh, but, but we'll see, you know, it's not the VeggieTales version. But we have to remember, Esther is in the Bible, right? It's here, we're at a church, it's been in the Bible for a long time. Uh, sometimes, this is a bit heretical to say, so uh, sometimes God is like my dad. Um, the, the better way to say that is my dad is sometimes like God, right? And what I mean by that is there's times where you can feel when God shows up in the scriptures, even when it isn't explicit. And some of reading the Bible over time is learning to recognize what are the signs that God is up to something, that, that he's here, the evidence we have that dad is home. In chapter 5, we start getting some of this evidence. It's a turning point. And what follows from chapter 5 on is a series of startling reversals that produce renewal. Reversal and renewal are words you're going to hear a lot in the next few minutes. And, and what you'll come to find if you read the Bible uh, with any kind of regularity is that God is often in the unforeseen occurrences and the unexpected reversals when your back is up against a wall, when you feel like you are out of options, that often becomes the time where God shows up and, and does something. Uh, the, the pivotal moments where you felt under great pressure or great challenge are oftentimes where you look back and it's just so clear you can recognize the hand of God at work in your life, even if it wasn't obvious at the time. Uh, reversal is one of the main themes of the book of Esther, and we don't have a ton of time to talk through all of them, 
but uh, you all have a Right Now Media account, or at least you should, and on there there's an eight-minute video, give or take, from the Bible Project, this guy named Tim Mackey. All of, it's just about the book of Esther. Uh, this will be in our Sojourn Church channel on there. If you have no idea what I'm talking about with Right Now Media, you can ask Christopher Morgan. <laughs> He's, I'm sorry, that's an inside joke. Shouldn't make inside jokes from the pulpit. Uh, you can go to the welcome table. That's so awkward. Only two people will think that's funny. That's what you get for being friends with the preacher. Uh, or you can go to the, wel- the welcome table, and we'll help you get signed up with the Right Now Media account. But this will go eight minutes and give you plenty of roads in to the theme of reversals through Esther. So we're going to talk about it just briefly uh, so that we can get to the ultimate invitation of Esther, which is this vision that the Bible has for renewal as a way of life. And if that phrase, renewal as a way of life, makes no sense to you right now, that's totally fine. Um, it's a foreign concept in our culture. So what we want to look at initially are these reversals that produce renewal. Uh, We've we've seen a hint of it already because Mordecai in the first few chapters of Esther goes from hiding to standing and then from standing to pleading on behalf of God's people. Uh, Esther goes from consuming to contributing and we left her last week deciding to confront King Xerxes with this you know, impressive, powerful statement, if I have to die, I have to die. If I perish, I perish. Because you can't go to the king without being invited. So your options are, if you go to the king, he'll either extend his golden scepter to you, which means you don't get to die, or he will execute you. So that's where we left it last week. She approaches Xerxes. He extends the scepter, which means she's not going to get executed just yet. He basically says... What my baby wants, my baby gets. What can I do for you, Esther? Anything in the world. So remember, we've got a genocide on the line here. And Mordecai has asked Esther to appeal to the king to, keep, to ask him to relent, to not kill all of the Jewish people. And the king says, whatever you want. This is from chapter 5. And here's Esther's big ask. If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for the king. You might be tempted to think that Esther's chickened out. Because she's all psyched up, goes to the king, and she says, I want to I make you dinner. And you're like, really, Esther? This is, this is your big ask? Well, think about if you've been with us for four weeks in a row now, what do you know about Haman and Xerxes? Uh, one, you know they're maniacs. Uh, you know they have no problem killing people. They overreact all the time. But the activities you see them engaged in the most often are eating and drinking. These guys loved to party. And I think Esther is saying this conversation might go better once the king has a few drinks in him. I think this is smart. She's appealing to his his stomach, the things she knows she likes, and it wasn't a hard ask or like a, a hard thing for Xerxes to say yes to. He's absolutely, let's have a party. They have a great party. Uh, this line isn't all that significant, but it's, it makes, this is one of the verses that makes me love the Bible. It's like a throwaway line. They have this wonderful party, they're drinking, they're eating, and Haman the maniac walks out, and it says, he was a happy man as he left the banquet. Right? It's just, he's happy. And that, you know, he's done, the wine has done what wine does. It gladdens the hearts of men. It's been a long week of deciding to kill an entire empire worth of people. He has, he has a party, and he's walking out, and he feels good. And he gets outside of the banquet hall, and who might you guess is standing across the, bank, across the courtyard staring at him? Anybody want to make a guess? Mordecai. Mordecai. The one who won't bow. The one who doesn't show me the respect that I need. The one who's thrown the entire empire into chaos because he wouldn't bow. 
and he just gets fussy. Haman is staring at Mordecai. Mordecai isn't afraid or intimidated. He's staring right back at Haman, and Haman goes home in a huff, his night ruined. He starts complaining to his wife, and it it turns into him bragging. You know little big man syndrome? It's where the little guy's insecure about being little, and he just talks a big, big game. Haman is insecure, and he just starts telling his wife how great he is, how powerful he is, which that's weird, right? To come home and talk to your wife and be like, I'm a big deal. I drive a, <laughs> I drive a Dodge Stratus. You remember that Will Ferrell's get? We're just like bragging about how great he is. And at some point, he has this idea. So remember, Haman is not one known for subtlety. So as he's fussing and fighting, with it, not with his wife, but he's just fussing, man, and he's upset about uh, Mordecai, he decides a solution. He can't just wait for the Jewish genocide to happen. He looks out into this big empty space in between buildings and says, you know what would look great there? A 75-foot tall spike. So let's build a gigantic spike, and then we can put Mordecai on it. And what did Mordecai do this time? He stood there when Mordecai walked out, or when Haman walked out of the party. He's like, hey. (laughs) And Haman's response is, I'm going to build a 75-foot tall spike. Now, for some reason, so that's happening over on, I don't know, the west wing of the palace. And back after, you know, maybe they had bad ribeye or something. Xerxes can't sleep that night. He's tossing and turning in bed, and he tells one of his servants that he wants a history book to help him go to sleep. Anybody guess what history he wants to read about? Does anybody know the story? His own. He asks for the history book of his own reign. And now I see you out there judging him. Some of you are like, what a narcissist. Listen, this was 4,000 years ago. This was the the ancient Near East version of scrolling your own Instagram feed in bed. (laughs) Oh! Word of the prophet. I nailed you. Why do I know you do that? Because I do that, right? Or you get a... You get a Facebook friend request from someone from high school that you haven't talked to in 20 years, and before you accept it, you go to your own Facebook page and be like, what will it look like to see me for the first time? Or, You know what I mean? So he's doing the stuff that we do today where you're worried about your own image. He's laying in bed reading about uh, his own life. And this is so wild what a maniac drunk Xerxes is. He's reading, and he gets to this point from two years before, events recorded in the book of Esther. He reads about this assassination plot, and he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot these two guys tried to kill me. But what had happened was they were, these two assassins were talking about their plot outside of the city gates, and someone overheard them talking. Anybody know who overheard him? Mordecai. Y'all be reading the Old Testament. My people, the 9 a.m. was clueless to the story. Mordecai, here's these assassins. And think of how mad you would have been back then if you were a Jewish person living under the persecution and oppressive reign of Xerxes to find out that Mordecai ratted on the assassins. Just be cool, be cool Mordecai. Let him kill him. That guy's an awful human being. Mordecai showed loyalty to Xerxes. I, why would you do this? And the king, now laying in his bed, scrolling Instagram, says to one of his servants, hey, what did we ever do for that guy Mordecai? That saved my life. And the servant's like, we didn't do anything. Not even a thank you note? We didn't do anything? And they're like, yeah, I mean, you just threw a party and we didn't do anything. At that moment, Haman walks in. 
and or he, he calls for Haman to come in. So let's jump back to Haman's story for a second. Great night. He's a happy man. Then Mordecai fusses me, and I make this plan to spike him in the middle of the court. And then I'm pacing around the palace, and the king invites me into his own bedroom. I think Haman is like, that's right. The king would invite me in. You know, put yourself in his shoes. I am a big deal. I'm Haman. I'm second in command. This little guy, is about to die tomorrow, and the king invites me into his bedroom for advice. And this is what the king asks of Haman. What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? What do you think Haman's thinking? <laughs> Today's the day. It's about time I got what's coming to me, right? Like, I'm finally going to get noticed around here. So Haman, assuming the king is talking about Haman, says, here's what you should do, king. Take your horse, the royal horse, and let this man sit on it. But first, put him in royal clothes, then have him sit on it. Oh, and you got to get someone to lead the horse and shout, this is what the king does when he loves somebody. And you got to make everybody in the city shout praises for this guy on the horse. He's licking his lips. And here's what Xerxes says. Excellent! Take the robes, take my horse, do just as you've said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you've suggested. That's so juicy, man! Can you imagine Haman's face when Xerxes says Mordecai? Haman has to walk around town with Mordecai, praising him even as he's preparing to execute him. And he goes away in a huff. What a day. <laughs> I've just made my son laugh. That was cute. <gasps> ah, Five-month-old giggling. Uh, and I, I got to think that, you know, the one thought that maybe he could console himself with, Haman, was at least I get to kill him tomorrow. You know, I'll walk him around town, and I'm going to put him on that spike tomorrow night. So, those are the events of Banquet 1. Let me throw you a banquet, king. What do you want? I want to throw you another banquet. If one night was good, two nights will be better. So, the second banquet, the next night is rolling along, and Xerxes comes up to his wife, to Esther, and he says, okay, what do you want? What do you really want? And then she takes her stand. She says, I want mercy for my people. A decree has gone out to kill all of the Jews, my people, and I want you to spare them. She outs herself as a Jew, and she associates with them, my people, and then she begs for mercy. And the king, another window into what a maniac he is, he loses his mind, and he says, who would do such a thing? And you can read in Esther, and an appropriate response would have been, you would. You signed off on it. But Esther looks over, and she sees Haman, who was the author of the plot. And she says, who would do such a thing? Haman would do such a thing. And Xerxes loses his mind. Haman is trying to kill my wife. In a rage, in a huff, Xerxes bolts out of the room. And what does Haman do? He leaps up onto the couch that Esther is on, and he's just begging for mercy. He's clawing at her, begging for mercy. Xerxes turns around and comes in, and he sees Haman all over Esther. And 
he loses his mind. You're going to try to kill my wife, and then you're going to try to grope my wife in my own palace? And he starts freaking out. A servant looks out the window and says, Xerxes, there's a 75-foot spike in the courtyard. And Xerxes says, put Haman on it. And Haman hangs, spiked to death on the spike he built to kill Mordecai. A decree goes out that all of the Jews can defend themselves. Thousands of Persians are executed. Mordecai is given the second place of authority in the kingdom. A glorious victory, a stunning reversal. Mordecai the compromiser becomes Mordecai the catalyst. Haman the executioner becomes Haman the executed. Xerxes the tyrant becomes Xerxes the merciful. And Esther the compromised hidden queen becomes the instrument of God's redemption. Stunning reversals revealing this seemingly unseen hidden hand of God working behind the scenes under the waterline in ways we wouldn't expect. And these renewals, these reversals brought about the deep renewal of the people of God. Renewal. That's where new life emerges from within you. Transformation where you become truly human the way that God designed you to be a human. It's the movement from hiding to standing, from fear to steadiness. Mordecai hiding his faith, compromising his character in chapter 1. Now look at the very last verse. This is how Esther ends. This is the last verse. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. Remember him in the beginning? Let's change our names. Let's hide our faith, only looking out for himself. And now he's looking out for the welfare of all their descendants, for the good of all of his people, from, from self-absorption to self-forgetfulness, from hiding to stand. In, like, is this not the kind of people that we want to be, who aren't so afraid, who have a, a steady faith that trusts God, a, a soul that's made new and, and pours life into others? Have you ever heard of anybody that's like, by the time I'm 70, I hope people know me as someone who only takes and is selfish and narcissistic? Like, that's nobody's dream. Don't we long to be people that bring life wherever we go? That when we come, we build people up and they say, man, I was better off when she would come. When when she comes over, I know that it's going to be okay. She speaks words of life into me. He makes me feel like, is this not the kind of people that we want to be? And we can't make the mistake of thinking that kind of transformation, that kind of renewal happens in just a moment. No one becomes the hero in a moment. The the execution of Haman isn't the climax of Esther. Mordecai's ascension isn't. The victory of the Jews isn't in battle. Rather, the highlight of Esther is wrapped up in the invitation to renewal not as an event, or a church service, but as an entire way of life. The invitation of Esther is to see renewal as a way of life, and it's seen in the climax of the book of Esther. This period of history is the first time Jewish people really had a choice of who they would be. They were surrounded by competing cultures. They could decide, will we be Jewish or will we be something else? This is the temptation Mordecai and Esther fell into in the beginning. They gave into this initially. 
But they both came to learn that renewal was not just a, a, for such a time as this moment, but it was an ongoing way of life. And so the, the, the climax of Esther is the initiation of a new holiday called Purim. And here's what we read about it. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness, and their mourning was turned into joy. There's a new annual holiday that is given to these people. And it teaches us that we are renewed through remembering. We have to remember our story. Remember is one of the most frequent invitations in the Bible. The festival of Purim, verse 28, this is why it was inaugurated. So that the memory of what happened would never die out among their descendants. This story would never be forgotten. See, Mordecai's turn came as he daily obeyed God and refused to bow. This daily practice shaped him, and it, it put him in a place to experience the hidden hand of God. It wasn't just a moment. It was this daily routine. His renewal led to Esther's. Esther's led to the empire, and now to their children. They're passing on a regular practice that will shape them. So, to put it into our context a little bit, I don't know that I'm right about this, but I just doubt that the pressures facing Christians are going away anytime soon. If you're here and you feel like the culture is increasingly hostile or at least dismissive of what you believe and how you live, I want you to know that I just don't think that is going away anytime soon. Um, I would argue the culture war is over, and we have lost. And, and I hope that we've been paying attention enough, or maybe you can pay attention enough now, to see what happens when what is shaping the souls of Christians is a desire for influence and power. The compromises we make, the distortions we make, because we think renewal will come as a result of positions of influence and power. And we can start feeling, I don't know, like there's something unique or special about us, or we're experiencing uniquely difficult times as Christians. And I would just say, uh, the specifics of why we're feeling rejected by the culture may be unique, but that pressure is nothing new. The people of God have been feeling on the margins and disproved of, as far as I can tell from just about the beginning. The aim of the, of the Christian life is not to re-win the culture war or to gain power, but, but to be renewed personally, to make it your aim to live a godly life, to work with your hands and mind your own business. Can't wait to go to the conference on that verse. That's a verse from the scriptures that I just read. Not how to win friends and influence people, how to work with your hands, be a faithful, simple person, minding your own business. Personal renewal. Your own personal transformation 
to become like Christ. And what happens there? It spills out and over into your home, into your kids, into your neighborhoods. And who knows what may happen then? Who knows? I mean, New Albany is small enough that if five or six hundred of us decide to take this seriously and step into renewal-driven ministry where we're pursuing our own truth, who knows what could happen in a town of 30,000, 35,000? Who knows what could happen? The way that we stay steady amidst all of this pressure and dismissive posturing from the culture is by remembering all the ways God has gone before us, remembering the story of the people who've gone before us, remembering the ways the hidden hand of God has shown up and cared for us. But now, that may sound good enough. I'm going to make it just a little bit uncomfortable now. Um, The way we remember is through the practice of rituals. We are renewed through remembering, yes, and we are renewed through Ritual. Some, maybe some of you have a Catholic background and you're like, I left the Catholic Church to get rid of this whole thing. Or when you think of rituals, maybe you think of the Illuminati with hoods on or doing something weird. It's, listen, I get it that it's a, it's a weird word, okay? And I get it that it's got weird connotations. But, but biblically, remembering is never just a mental exercise. Biblically, ritual is how we remember with our bodies. It's the physical embodied act of remembering. Purim was not simply a time where Esther was read and people took notes. It wasn't a nationwide Bible study. It was a feast, party, dancing. If you want to read more about this, go read Leviticus 23, the whole 23rd chapter. It's God's design for time, and it's all rooted in remembering, and the way God tells them to remember is through these crazy parties. Roll out the barrel, get the best wine, crazy parties. But these parties weren't like the culture around them. It wasn't like Xerxes and Haman, drinking to forget, partying to numb their pain. This was celebrations rooted in remembering. So in light of Purim, what happened? What did this look like? They invented a dessert for this, a whole dessert just for one holiday. My kind of people, you want to do something special? Let's make a whole dessert over it. So what did they do? They created a dessert called Hamantaschen. There's uh, so you, let's all try to say it together. Hamantaschen. Yeah, you can tell who studied German and who didn't. Hamantaschen. And now there's a factual representation of what it is and a theological one. Uh, one that will weird you out and one that you might be a little bit more comfortable with. So Hamantaschen is a three-cornered pastry, triangular pastry. Uh, sometimes it was open on the top, sometimes it was closed. And it was like, you made a shortbread and on the inside there was filling. Jelly, chocolate, apricot, jams, preserves, whatever, whatever you're into. The factual interpret. what did this represent? It represented Haman's three-pointed hat like a pirate. And when you bit into it, it was supposed to remind you of him getting put on a spike and his head bursting open and his brains coming out. So they would eat this and be like, Haman got spiked. <laughs> Haman's brains. <laughs> you know, like, I know. It's kind of creepy. But think if you were one of the Jews, hiding your children under the bed, sure of what would happen, and then you see Haman's body on a spike. When you bit bit into that cookie, you'd be like, ain't no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? (laughs) You remember when his head went on a spike? Now, the more theological interpretation is that on the outside, it just looks like a plain cookie. It just looks ordinary. But when you, you bite into it, you find that there's hidden secret goodness. The hidden hand of God isn't always obvious. And so they would eat this cookie once a year 
to be reminded God is at work even when you don't feel it or when you don't see it. And he will do something. He will make a way. He will show up somehow, and you'll find that what was in the center of the seemingly normal thing is something delicious and good and beautiful. And God could have just given them a verse, but instead he says, make a cookie and eat it. And the week's coming up to Purim. You'll be like, ooh, we're going to get our Hamantosh, and we're going to get our Hamantosh, you know? They remembered with their bodies. They ate it once a year and ritualistically would experience it. Every time they took a bite, it was a reminder, God will make a way. They remembered with their bodies. It got into them. That is the purpose of ritual. It it invites us to experience the mystery of the truths we confess. It's easy to say, God will make a way. The hidden hand of God will show up. But you ever notice how it's, it's hard to feel that way sometimes? Or you're not carrying it around, or you don't have that confidence when, you're facing, when you lost a job, or have a sick child, or you don't know what is coming? These rituals help us move that from our minds down into our hearts through experiencing it with our bodies. So how do we remember the hidden hand of God? Eat this. You realize this is what we do every week at church? And I think... I think the Catholics get this way better than us. We get bodies involved in the service. We speak prayers together. You, you can sit here and just be quiet the whole time and not move. But that's not what our service is designed to do. You have to speak words back to us. When we give, you have to move a bucket around. We actually make you say hi to people and get up and shake hands and and move. When we do communion here in just a minute, you have to come forward. We don't just pass a tray where you can just sit there and hide. And so if you grew up Catholic, you know when you walked into the room, you had to do the cross. When you got to your chair, your, your pew, you had to kneel down. If you're a visitor and you're like, why do you guys stand up and sit down so much? Why do you keep doing? that because they were making you use your body. It was getting your body involved in the truth of what we are saying. In our bodies, we can experience something beyond what we can rationally explain. And this teaches us how to trust. We, we, even if you're not sad, we'll do a prayer of lamentation because we're teaching you how to lament. We're teaching you how to confess. We're teaching you these prayers and these words so that you're ready to die, so that you're ready to suffer, so that you're ready to rejoice, whatever life may throw at you. It moves our faith from our heads down into our hearts, and it gives us strength to stay steady. Biblical ritual is remembering with our bodies. So we've got Hamantoshen for everybody after the service. Uh, I called every bakery in Louisville, and asked, could you make us Hamantosh? And they said, what? You want what? And nobody would make it for us. So, oh, she's here! Lauren Sims, who's on staff and she leads our kids' ministry, has made about six or 700 of these things, spent the last two or three days baking. Thank you. Appreciate your ministry. Uh, and after the service, we want you to go enjoy some. Uh, there's chocolate hamantashen, you got cherry, you got apricot, we got gluten-free, you got nut-free, you got, they're all labeled, okay? There's a, a bunch of different ones. Uh, we got a lot of them. So if you want to try four or five, if you want to try two or three, don't just eat one, okay? You got to eat a couple of them, try them. We want you to go out and enjoy that, but we want you to enjoy it with a purpose. So here's what I mean. Find somebody you don't know. 
find someone that looks like they're here alone, or they look confused, like, what is going on? The Christians made me cookies, right? Like, <laughs> find somebody. Just find a friend that you came with. And, and share a story about the hidden hand of God in your life. When has he shown up for you, Christian? How has he made a way for you? When was the time that you felt hopeless and drowning? But God, you don't know how it happened, but this happened. And I, you know, those moments where you're all of your doubt and your insecurity and your fears, like, am I blowing it? Is this a waste? And then God does something and you just, I can't explain it, but there he is. I see him. I feel that dad is home. I can, I can recognize him. Share that story. Let's be a people who learn to recognize the hidden hand of God and let this little tiny cookie with its hidden goodness inside be a way to help you share that story. Christian, remember our God is here. He is near. He will make a way. And, you know, notice Jesus doesn't invite us to remember his life and his provision with a Bible study. The creeds and confessions are important, but Jesus didn't say recite the Apostles' Creed every week at service. He said, remember what I've done for you. How? Well, he took a loaf of bread. You remember what we say every week? On the night he was what? On the night he was betrayed. If you were to write the story of cosmic restoration and renewal and redemption, would you start it with betrayal? But God says, listen, on the night when I was going to be arrested, on the night when my friends would leave me, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this. Remember what I've done for you. In a, in a few hours, he would be beaten so badly you couldn't recognize him. He was spit on. He was struck. He was stripped naked. He was nailed to a cross. God says, if you're nervous, if you're unsure about whether or not I will make a way for you, remember that my body was broken for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. I don't know what you got into this week. I don't know what kind of mistakes you made this week, or if you're visiting with us the first time. There, your life is filled with mistakes. And, and maybe you're unsure that God loves you at all. Well, Jesus says, this wine, remember my blood shed for you. This is how you know you can be safe with God. And he doesn't just say, think about bread and think about wine. He says, I want you to take it and eat it. I want you to take it and drink it. We remember through ritual. What is he communicating to us? Take this bread that you can feel and smell and touch and taste. I want you to eat it, swallow it, and it will become you. It will heal your tired and sore bones from this week. It will repair stretched and, I don't know, distorted muscles. Like, think of all of the imagery and what does that communicate to us about the heart of God, the mystery of his love for us. So our tradition at Sojourn is we come forward, we rip off a piece of bread, we dip it in wine, you can dip it in juice, the wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Use whichever you would like. Jesus invites us to the greatest ritual of all with our bodies, calling us to remember God's ultimate provision and most beautiful reversal. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come celebrate our hope together. Let's pray.